At 11FS, we exist to change the fabric of financial services and the perception of the industry as a whole. And we're excited to officially bring you a first glimpse of our most ambitious media project to date. We've made a feature-length documentary. For years, the story of the financial crisis has been told in isolation. The bad things that happened during it, the global fallout from it, and the effect on consumers as a result. So we wanted to tell the untold story, how UK financial services evolved out of the crisis, created the perfect ecosystem, and grew into a thriving global fintech capital that we have today. We conducted over 20 interviews from the leaders in the UK's biggest banks, regulators, fintechs, all sharing first-hand experience of the changes that propelled the UK to its position as the global financial services hub. The trailer is available to watch now on 11years.film. Head over to the website, watch it, and let us know what your thoughts are on Twitter. This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and in today's show, we are celebrating our 50th episode. InsureTech Insider has reached the grand old age of 50 episodes, and to celebrate this milestone, we're joined by some of our most frequent returning guests from across the series to date. So we have Toby Talbot, CEO and co-founder of Lacquer. How are you today, Toby? Very well, thank you. Thank you for coming back. Uh, Oliver Ralph, insurance correspondent at the FT. How are you today, Oliver? I'm very well, thanks. And last but by no means least, Jimmy Williams, CEO and co-founder at Urban Jungle. How are you today, Jimmy? Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, also, I should say at this point that we invited many of our most frequently appearing ladies too, uh, but there are a lot of insurance conferences on right now, and some even had the temerity to take a summer holiday, uh, so they were sadly unavailable. So in today's show, we're going to be looking at the top news topics and trends in InsureTech over the last 50 episodes and going forward. But before we get into that, you'll notice that today I am not joined by my co-host Nigel Walsh, who is sunning himself in Vegas at InsureTech Connect. However, he didn't want to miss out on the fun, so we have a quick message from him to play to you all now. Hey folks, Nigel here. Sorry I can't be with you on the 50th episode, absolutely gutted for that, but I'm sure you'll have a great show. I'm about to break all the rules of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So I'm here for InsureTech Connect, it's year four. And three years ago, we wouldn't have imagined 7,000 people uh, getting together in Las Vegas to talk about insurance and sure tech and innovation. And here we are. The show is bigger, brighter. It's definitely matured from year one where we had pieces of paper on the floor to find your meeting spot through to a really, really slick, well-organized conference by Jay and Caribou. Everyone is here. The expo halls have gone from small desks to two huge halls full of startups, incumbents, and folks meeting together. General trend for me this year, people looking for more money. There are a whole host of startups that are raising uh, Series B or larger seed rounds or post-seed rounds, if that's something, and doing a great job of it. So really exciting to be here. Uh, Some really, really cool things that are going on. Uh, Looking forward to coming back next year. Enjoy the rest of the show. Great to hear from Nigel there, complete with dad joke, obviously. Uh, All right, let's dive in. Kicking off with some general industry trends, let's talk about funding. 
So InsureTech funding surpassed $3 billion in 2018 and is up 280% in Q2 compared to the same period last year. Uh, so we covered this trend back in August when we looked at Willis Towers Watson's Q2 report, but as it's one of the biggest stories, we thought we're going to take another look at it today. So investment in the global insure tech market grew by 84% in 2018, topping the $3 billion mark. The funding increase has also led to a greater number of digital policies for consumers as more insure tech startups emerge. This is all according to uh, Global Data. That's an uh, research firm, actually. It's not just like global data, which is a thing you can find on the internet. (laughs) And uh, the trend that we've seen continuing is that a handful of very large insurtech funding deals um, have taken almost a total amount of fundraising. So basically, a few companies are raising a lot of money and making up for uh, the bulk of that funding. Um, Thoughts, gentlemen, on this? Um, Yeah, it's really interesting, the way way it's changing. Funding news is generally... interesting to look at interesting to write about the you always see a lot of exciting ideas but when somebody's actually put some real money behind it it sort of says well this this might actually happen this one so the fact there's still a lot of money coming in i think is is very interesting um but so is the the change the fact that some very big ones are raising a lot of money um and i wonder what that's doing to companies at the smaller end of the scale yeah, of course. When last time we mentioned this, we talked about SoftBank being involved in uh, so many of the largest deals as well. Um, so that's you know something that it doesn't seem to have changed much since we last discussed it. SoftBank is still putting the most money into the biggest deals. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's a, a couple of things that's worth thinking about. So one of the data points in the, the kind of the research is about the number of deals going down. One thing we should just watch out for is often smaller deals are still in stealth. So we may well find out a year from now that actually there were more deals in the past and those smaller deals weren't weren't announced. Um, so I think that's something to keep an eye on. But <clears throat> in general tech sense, if you zoom out from the insurance world, it is, this is entirely what you would expect. You'd expect exponential amount of money going into the winning firms. And that's kind of effectively how tech funding works and you know, it should be entirely unsurprising to us. And we should also, I think, expect to see it double, triple down over the next two or three years, um, as especially as a number of the, these companies are now being really successful and starting to steal some pretty serious market share. I completely agree. Um, I would love to see a breakdown of this. I think insurtech as a term gets somewhat diluted over time. So you have a wider definition of insurance as a whole insurtech itself. Um, yeah, there are clearly outliers that skewed completely, and I agree it's great for us in the industry that more spotlight is coming into the sector. That means more money, more talent, more awareness. So it should go up, um, hopefully to the point where it still remains healthy. I think what's interesting um, as well as, well, interesting just from a, from an analytics point of view is um, that a lot of this money is actually going into the America where you'd imagine, but also the third biggest round was to Policy Bazaar, which is, I believe, based in India. Um, do we do we think that this is, you would, I think you would expect to see a lot of money going to America first. We've talked quite a lot about how mature the American insurtech market is, perhaps compared to, certainly in funding terms, compared to what we've seen in Europe. Does, is this hopeful that we might start to see some of these mega rounds coming our way next? Our way being Europe? <laughs> Oh, hang on, can I stop? Yeah, no, let's go with Europe. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> well, you've seen WeFox raise a pretty big round in the last year, right? Um, broadly speaking, from the same source, if you really uh, really zoom into it. Um, so I think we're, we're already there. And if you look what's happening more broadly in Europe, uh, interest rates take another leg down over the summer. It's really hard for investors to find returns anywhere. And what that's done is push money 
all over the financial system into private equity or hedge funds and venture capital is one of those places. And I think as investors in Europe look for places to deploy their money that will give them some sort of positive return, there's no reason why they shouldn't put them into some sort of insure tech investments. Yeah, I guess what's interesting is is looking at uh, what's happened with the challenger banks too. So um, certainly my friends who work in European venture capital, like when they were sort of five years ago looking at these challenger banks coming up, one of the big concerns they had is that they knew it was a multi-hundred million dollar project to build a proper challenger bank and they were worried that the capital wouldn't flow into those businesses because they were in the UK and not in the US and I think that has actually now they've hopefully you know kind of broken down that barrier and said you know what it's completely fine to put 200 300 million dollars to work in a in a UK based business or a European based business um, out, you know, typically out of Asia or out of uh, out of America or elsewhere in the world, including UK funds. But uh, it'll be interesting to see whether that that kind of continues. And you know, my my view is that it could well do. I think it's not just um, this. I think on top of that is um, the different mindset in the US and the US investor. Um, I would argue the quality of the businesses is probably the same, if not better, more innovative. In my mind, we have more opportunities, like the investor, uh, the FCA Sandbox, for instance. Um, and, and many more around that. So I feel like a change of mindset is needed. We are still doing a lot of investor education. I feel like there's a lot of um, startup tourism still going on. Um, try to educate an investor on B2C tech. They expect you to have the same traction as marketplaces, whilst you have to spend a year getting a license, getting an underwriting agreement. Um, B2B is a different game altogether, I suppose, but hopefully we're catching up. And I think there's a lot of opportunity in Europe. And um, yeah, let's see how it goes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, it's optimistic, shall we say? Um, what's what's less optimistic, and I've been forced to mention this, is the B word. Uh, so we talked back in June um, this year about Lemonade's Brexit-proof strategy and what it means for the industry as a whole. So uh, Lemonade said, um, "We're coming to Europe." which is great. They are arguably one of the most well-known and one of the largest insure techs. Um, Speak for yourself, globally. But they began the European extension not by coming to the UK, but by going to Germany. Um, apparently, there was a lot of expectation that they would have launched in the UK. You, you can you can see for a start that the linguistic similarities is probably where that was immediately drawn from. Um, but they outwardly said that they were going to launch in Germany because they wanted a, a EU-based hub, and they were they were concerned about Brexit. So. Um, I mean, I can't even begin to talk about what's happened in the Brexit situation in the last few days because I think I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around it. Um, but has anybody around the table seen any positive or negative impact from even just that? I mean, even that that's the most the concerning thing right now is that maelstrom of confusion, I suppose. Is that having an impact in and of itself? <sighs> Basically, says nothing has happened so far, right? And we will need to see what actually happens to make a call. Um, we are, for one, looking to move towards Europe as well at the right time. And we make as a basic case assumption to look into a European hub. So um, as an intermediary, it's not as difficult as a carrier, of course, but it's just a new world. And if you ba- live on that basis, I haven't seen a lot of impact on, on our business so far. You think people are waiting and seeing? Waiting and seeing, right? What else would you want to do? So, yeah, I mean, in the insurance space, like some people have been doing things, right? So I think I'm pretty sure Ziga have gone and got a license in Ireland, for example, um, to try and kind of Brexit-proof themselves to, to think about going global. Um, I think my view from, I guess, more being around talking to people rather than from our own business is that the the biggest sort of fundamental change that's happened in the last six months is... Uh, the government has exposed, well, now we have a different government, so it's hard to tell, but the government has exposed, they broadly speaking, 
don't care about business. So they're happy to run right to the brink and say, prepare for Brexit, prepare for Brexit. Oh, we're not going to do it. Uh, and we're probably about to have that again. And I think if you're British, like like me, I'm not gonna, probably not going to move away and take 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 the business away. But I think if you're an international business owner, business founder, and we've seen that to an extent with the car manufacturers and other things, and I'm not sure we won't see it elsewhere. And you're kind of like, oh, you so, say, you know, business isn't at front and centre here in the UK. Business isn't important to the government. That's going to make my life difficult over the next 10-year horizon. At the margins, I might start to make some different decisions. And I think that's actually nothing to do with nothing to do with Brexit, but is has kind of come to the fore because of Brexit. And I guess that's something that we should be worried about. <laughs> um. I'd agree with part of that. I, th- I think you're definitely right. What, what, but I think it's because of Brexit. At the margins, people are making different decisions. So lemonade is a good example. It's going to Europe. Where is it going in Europe? It could have gone to the UK. Actually, it's gone to Germany with a head office in, in the Netherlands, I think it is. Mm-hmm. So they, they've given themselves more options. And you speak to the big insurance companies and they've set up their new subsidiaries in Dublin or in Luxembourg or wherever <coughs> it might be. And they've moved a lot of policies there. Not a lot of staff at the moment. They've not picked up a 1,000 people and moved them across the border. That hasn't happened. But suddenly, they've now got a base in continental Europe, in Luxembourg or wherever it is. Next time they start a new business, they're thinking, well, we could put it in London or we could put it in our new thing in, in Luxembourg. Now they've got a choice. They're, they've got more options. And at the margin, it starts to move things slowly away from London. I think that's what we're seeing in, in a big way. I mean, there was there was a, a, a story a, a month or so back about the, the volume, the amount of money that's gone out of the UK in terms of both policies and I think assets from insurers. They're just, it's, it's, you know, the insurers themselves haven't gone, but the money's gone. Yes. You know, huge amounts of funds and everything else have just been shifted, and largely to Luxembourg or Dublin. You're right, they seem to be yeah. the, the two preferred options. Um, yeah, I've talked to a few US-based VCs basically corroborating that story. So they're... they're Often, if they, you're the European arm of a US VC, right, you spend a lot of time advising US um, team members on how do you come to Europe. And historically, the obvious decision, language and, and all those other things was to come to London, talent, etc. They are actually advising most of their businesses to launch in Barcelona, Berlin, Amsterdam. And that is real and happening and less visible because, it's, as you say, it's, it's the jobs that never arrived, not the jobs that left. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just to throw in, I'm also a bit on the fence that Lemonade went into Germany just because of Brexit, right? I think it's um, a different matter. Um, it's probably more a market sizing exercise. Um, it's the largest European market. We are, being German myself, a little bit behind the curve in terms of digital adoption. Um, as a young market, I think there's a customer base up for grabs, which could be quite appealing to them potentially. So um, I don't see why you would do I would that totally agree with that. No price comparison sites to compete with, right? I think that... <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think we can say that Brexit was one of, one of the factors, I think, you know, not being, Brexit, not being the UK was probably Brexit. Germany was probably, okay, if we're not going to do the UK, where do we pick? Germany is the answer. Um, but we're going to move on to, we're gonna, well, we're going to stay with the Brits because apparently most of us believe insurers dodge paying on claims. So we talked about this uh, a few weeks back. Um, so YouGov research shows that the majority of Brits have a negative view of the insurance industry. Still, currently most Brits hold at least one form of insurance cover and 82% think insurance isn't just for unlucky people, i.e. 82% of people think that you probably should have it. However, more than 68% of the, are of the opinion that providers will do whatever they can to avoid paying out, even in the event of a legitimate claim. Um, so apparently 73% of current policyholders intend to switch providers in search of a better deal. 
I think that last bit is slightly telling because I think in the UK we're slightly we're, we're mostly trained to once your insurance expires uh, or your policy's shop up around, to, to, to shop around. Yeah. We're, we're, mm. One of the few areas we are actually trained in that because I don't know that people do it with their gas bill. But um, what what are we going to do about this? How do we change this? Well, the, well, the, the, the easy solution is stop trying not to pay claims. I would suggest. Um, insurance. Do I, I felt like you were telling me that. I was no, like, no, 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 I've never done it. Sarah, <laughs> I was going to say exactly the same. The problem is that it's true, right? <laughs> is that I think uh, I certainly kind of prior to really coming into the insurance industry, I'd been more focused on the distribution side and kind of have got into the, the back end. And as I've got to understand more how the insurance industry works, I've just been blown away by how um, flexible, shall we say, insurers can be in terms of how they pay a claim so it could be much more about how how is their profit running for that year yeah uh and as a result they start to make different claims decisions that should not be how how it how it is right it, there should be a you know a clear black and white rule um and so if, you know the reason customers think that is because <laughs> because it's true so as long as it's true then i think they'll think that it's a bit of like a sweet spot because that's our business model essentially insurance is intangible so how can we make it more tangible right so our business model is effectively saying let's pay out first and recollect the money we paid out plus a fee for us and um, that's one way to make insurance a bit more tangible um, i'm mind blown when i see ads in the tube where insurers actually say um, we pay out 99 of claims and making it a positive right it's almost saying bmw 99% of my cars actually work, right? So uh, there must be a different story behind that to push um, customer levels and whatnot else. Um, it's, it's a big, big leap at the moment. I, th I think insurers, I mean, I, they do a, a good job a lot of the time of paying claims. So over the last few years, I've had to make a few claims for one thing or another. And my, my experience has generally been very good and they need to, to advertise what they, they do a lot more. They also need to rely a little less on the legal terms and conditions and, and mumbo-jumbo. I know it's at the basis of the contract and, and they, they can't ignore it and that kind of thing. But when there was um, the drone chaos at Gatwick mm. uh, last year, I think it was, around the turn of the year, I spoke to some insurers and said, is this going to be covered? And they said, oh, well, it might be, it might not be. It depends on the terms of the actual contract and some people might not be covered. And I thought, for most people, This is exactly why you buy travel insurance. Someone yeah. flies a drone near Gatwick, your flight gets cancelled. Do you expect your travel insurance to pay out? And if it's not paying out, that's why there's going to be a trust issue. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the terms and conditions point is a very valid one. I just wonder, um, Toby, is this? You, I'm not asking you to give stats, but do you think that this perception is is you know similar in Germany? Do you think the people don't trust insurers there as well? We have a, a common term which is called "sports for the masses," basically defrauding us extending the facts so to speak right and it's sad but true and Stretching i feel like the truth <laughs> a, a little bit right and, and we've seen it um, over and over and a part of it is this misconception that i pay often for years for no perceived service right and i think if we find a way to realign these interests um actually having an impact if i am um, claim more or we collectively claim more pay more uh, for instance that might make all the difference already Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. As you say, I don't, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Um, going to something that is hopefully uh, changing soon is, um, so we covered back in April that Lloyds of London had decided to ban anyone under the influence of alcohol or drugs from the building after revelations of sexual harassment came public. Last week, um, it came out that uh, one of the, the follow-on actions that Lloyds had done off the back of that um, off the back of that, that uh, those revelations, if you like, was to commission an independent survey to see how ingrained sexual harassment is. Uh, 
Shetield, yeah, very. Um, one in 10 workers, or around 8% of, of Lloyd's workers, and this isn't just people employed by Lloyd's, this is people who go in and out of the market, and there's, there's tens of thousands of them, said they had witnessed sexual harassment in the past 12 months. It found like female workers had faced inappropriate comments as well as physical attacks by male colleagues. Um, and if you think about how few women there are in the market and the fact that that many people had seen it, how many times was each woman being subjected to some form of sexual harassment? Um, so 6,000 people participated in this survey. So it's a fairly large sample size. Um I mean, we talked about this earlier in the year, but does it, is this more endemic than we thought or is this just exactly what we thought it was and now we've got data to prove it? I think it's more endemic than a lot of people thought. Um, for a long time, a lot of people have said to me, oh, well, Lloyd's, it's, it's a very laddish market. You know, there's a lot of banter and a lot of drinking, but fundamentally it's, you know, they're all gentlemen really at heart and you know, it's, you, we're not, we don't really have any harassment. This lays bare the extent of the problem. That 8% is 500 people in the past year have witnessed sexual harassment. That's a shocking statistic, absolutely shocking, particularly given the amount of effort that Lloyd's has put in over the past three, four, five years more into trying to crack down on harassment and improve diversity. And clearly it's only had a limited impact. And to still have 500 people saying, I've witnessed some sort of harassment over the past year, I, I think is pretty shocking. Yeah, I mean, it's disastrous, right? I mean, you would see CEOs resign for less, right? Um, it's a it's really big, really big deal. Um, I actually did, when, when you kind of sh- sent this around in the show notes, I did a bit of research with a couple of people I know at Lloyd's to ask about what's next, right? Which is the obvious question. It's like, how do, where do you go from here? How do you improve it? I think it was interesting to get their take that younger people at Lloyd's really aren't standing for this stuff. So mm-hmm. big change in culture among the younger generation, obviously drinking less than their older peers, um, this stuff in general becoming much less acceptable and I think that's one of the reasons why it's all now coming to the fore and coming out and being much more public is because that younger generation of people who are now coming into Lloyd's and building their careers there are saying stop this is this is not acceptable this is not cool and and I think um, from a from the you know the insurance perspective you know insurance needs uh, young blood if you like it needs you know uh, whether that's literally you know literally young people as in they have you know fewer years or people who've um, spent their careers somewhere else and are now looking to move into insurance the insurance industry needs that if it's going to keep up and modernize and, and and you know work in today's world but my assumption would be that if this is the primary um, understanding of insur- the insurance industry that you have which it might well be because the BBC has covered this to death and it's been in, you know, the, not just in the insurance times, it's been all over the BBC's front page. Is this going to have a negative impact on the insurance industry as a whole if you think, oh, well, I don't want to go into that industry? It's probably exactly that, right? If you read all the headlines, why would you want to go into that? And insurance is really mind-blowing in a very sad way that it's the last four in, in many regards, right? Antiquated, um, desperate need of um, rejuvenating and uh, stats like that. You really wonder how this can still carry on. Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd hope now things will, will start to change. Um, but it's a very, very slow process, apparently. It seems to be very, very ingrained in the culture, and changing it is a, is a very hard job. Um, one of the things that, that came out was that um, they Lloyd set up a, headline, a hotline sorry, earlier this year for people to report instances of, of harassment. And apparently there's not been many calls into that. And so they have a real problem with getting people to report what's happened. Mm. It's clearly happening because people have told the survey they've seen it happening. And yet people are reluctant to come forward. And, and until they can get people to come forward and, and be able to deal with the instances as they've happened, 
I think it's going to be very hard to move things on. I mean, and there's, there's two things you need to do there, isn't it? One, one, the perpetrators need to be caught and held to account for their actions. But second of all, you need to have the support mechanisms in place for people who are suffering this kind of harassment to feel confident and safe that they can report it. Because half the time, you know, and this, this goes outside of insurance, but half the time any woman who's experienced anything like that doesn't always feel confident that they can report it, particularly if the person who has been doing the harassing is their senior, which is, I'm going to suggest, quite often the case. Um, so I think in terms of, you know, how do, how do we stop this happening? How do we correct it? That has to be implemented as well, getting getting proper proper support for people who, who are doing it and, and, you know, and helping them, as you say, find it easier to report it. Yeah. So we're going to move away from the general trends and we're going to move towards something that's very up to date as we're recording this. The crash of Thomas Cook insurance industry reacts. I think this is quite a sad story. I think the story of Thomas Cook is quite sad. Um, Thomas Cook Airlines has gone into liquidation and the insurance industry is poised to pay out a lot of claims. So AXA UK has experienced three times the amount of calls from customers than usual. There are in excess of 150,000 travellers who have to be repatriated. Um, For stranded holidaymakers, it's the largest repatriation ever to happen during peacetime. So that means insurers are having to work with all sorts of different organisations. So you've got Atoll, the CAA, the FCA. Um, and the minute you have that many organisations involved, I'm already slightly scared about how this is going to happen. Um, the Bieber, British Insurance Brokers Association, have warned that not all policies cover airline failure. Allianz... More drones, turns out. Yeah, <laughs> more drones. Uh well, maybe that's airline failure. Um, Allianz, meanwhile, has offered a free travel insurance transfer or full travel insurance refund for customers who have bought coverage to accompany a Thomas Cook holiday. Um, and lobbying group Consumer Choice Centre has a different take. One should ask why taxpayers should pay for tourists who didn't buy insolvency or travel insurance. Ooh, lots of different perspectives mm. there. What do we think? I think the insurance industry has missed a trick here. I think the the response overall from insurers has been disappointing. When when this happened uh, and Thomas Cook went bust, the insurer's first reaction was to say, we shouldn't have to pay out for this. At all, the travel insurance scheme will pay out for some things. Credit card companies should pay out for other things. Maybe debit card companies will have to pay out. In general, people probably shouldn't have to rely on their insurance policies. And even if they do, they might not pay out. And this is exactly why there's a trust problem. This was the time for insurance industry to stand up and say, we've got your back. Holiday makers stuck in a resort, not knowing what's happened. Don't worry, you've got insurance, we'll cover you. We're here to help. Call us up, we'll help you sort it out. But no, no, the response was other people should probably pay. And I'm sure that's great for the balance sheet. But then next time the insurers complain about underinsurance and why aren't people buying more insurance policies? This is why. And I think um, the only exception there is Allianz, which is said it's offered free travel insurance yeah. transfer a full. But, you know, why didn't more people do that? Because Allianz is now going to stick in those people's minds. Oh, my God, we had an awful experience. We were stuck in Tunisia and then Allianz came to our rescue. So next time we go on holiday, let's choose Allianz. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I have any strong reason. No. Oliver said it well. It was an opportunity to step up. Um, it seems like a handful of companies did so and probably get the recognition they deserve for that. But it's, it's, it's sad that you have to you can build your profile by providing a service that you pay for, right? Um, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm sort of mulling on what you're saying about it being an opportunity. So I, I think I sort of naturally agree. I naturally feel like I'd want the, the insurance company to pay if that was the case. I guess one of the challenges you have, particularly as a travel insurer, is it's always an emergency. So, 
you know, when someone gets sick abroad, that's a massive emergency. And okay, this is all an emergency that all happened on the same day, but that's like essentially what the insurers are dealing with. Um, so it's, in some ways, it's not surprising that they, they just for the sake of their call centers, need to say that because they, they're, they're presumably having to put on thousands of extra people to take all these, these, these claims calls. And I guess there's always, there's always two sides of an argument, right? There's, there's some nuance, but um, like I, I would, Atoll should pay, right? That's, that, that as, my, as a consumer, that is my firm expectation is that Atoll should pay and not, and not in my interest. Atoll should pay, but the insurance industry should say, we're here for you. Come and speak to us. A premium insurance company should, would be, my, would be my view. So I think there are lots of people out there buying very, very cheap insurance policies, and you get, you get, what, you, get what you pay for. Like if I bought, I don't, I don't know whether Hiscox do travel insurance, right, but if I bought some, like if I bought travel insurance from them, definitely, I'm, I'm coming home in a limousine, right? <laughs> but, but would I expect personally to be repatriated? I, I don't think I would. Courtesy of price comparison websites, right? Yeah. Lower price, lower service potentially. So the, the one thing that I on here, so I, I do understand that the conversations about travel insurance, and I, I would know that this wouldn't be covered, but I also, if I was going to put through a travel agent, would have done my research, but that's because this is my job and I'm kind of <laughs> trained to do that and you can't expect everybody to do that. Um, but it says, a taxpayer shouldn't pay for tourists who didn't buy insolvency insurance. Like, how often do you buy insolvency insurance before you go on holiday? Is that I a thing? Am mean, I not doing something? They, I think what they mean, the clause in the travel insurance uh, that covers okay. insolvency. So when you when you do on a comparison site, actually they do, it is one of the tick boxes they have. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, for covers airline insolvency is the, is the common... Also a little bit surprised and shocked as a consumer. I would have hoped um, that a bit of money that I put into such a travel or tour operator is ring-fenced and is being probably paid up front. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, to, to at least bring you back, if nothing else. So that's a really interesting technicality. So I'd only realized this reading the news today is that Atoll only insures them from the moment that the, um, the operator goes bust. So if you're on holiday right now and you're three days into your holiday, um, then... Atoll will only pay the balance of your holiday and not to the hotel immediately, probably a month's time. Those first three days are still payable to the hotel operator by Thomas Cook, who are already in insolvency and they are unlikely to get their money. And so the hotel's demanding that money from the customers. And actually, the, there is... Um I had this sudden thought, you know, there's an awful lot of hotels in places like Greece and Tunisia that rely on Thomas Cook. Like, these hotels are going to be in trouble now. Did you see the stories around the British um, tourists being trapped in the hotel, locked away with security guards outside until they pay their bills? I mean... Terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and Toby's exact, so Toby's decision to it. The problem is the customer's paying, and then they're not paying the hotel till seven months later. If we were in insurance, I'd be, I personally would, in our company, would be ring-fencing that money because it's the client's money, basically, that is ready to pay the hotel. It's not your, yeah, it's not your profit. Sorry, you, you, you do what you want with your profit, but the actual hotel bill you need to, to put to one side. Yeah, it's a lesson it for all non-regulated the business industry. model itself, right? Um, banks have to ring-fence customers' money, or at least to guarantee to a certain degree. Why don't they? Very good question. All right, we're going to move on to something um, for Nigel in absentia. The insurance industry struggle to insure e-scooters. Anybody who listens to us regularly knows how we feel about e-scooters around here. Um, the global e-scooter market will reach up to $50 billion by 2025, with approximately 50% of usage stemming from Europe and the USA. Um, it's basically hard for cities, regulators and insurers to keep up. We know that. Um, new technologies like GPS, locators and telematics 
should allow insurers to more easily understand the driving habits and risk profiles of the consumer base or a particular rider in real time. Um, however, there's still a lot of confusion about how you do that um, and also around which insurance policies will pick up an e-scooter liability claim. So, um, I mean, I think this is, it says here that if a rider has personal or private health insurance, they will likely get some coverage in the case of an accident. But if an e-scooter rises, causes an injury to a pedestrian, damages a person's property or causes a road accident, coverage is much less clear and often non-existent. Um, so to a certain extent, this is kind of like you can understand how, how this has happened because e-scooters have moved faster than perhaps you would ever expect regulators or insurers to move. But on the other hand, most cyclists still don't have coverage in the UK that if they cause an injury to a pedestrian or damage a person's property or cause a road accident. So, you know, we could have thought of that 30 years ago. So, uh, my, my you know, many questions about the e-scooters anyway. Um, but I guess, you know, is, 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 is this... Are we going to solve this problem? Are we going to see insurance-free scooters? Or are we going to see people going, no, scooters are too hard, let's just ban them? Because in the UK, that's what happened with Segways, just as a point of reference. In London, you cannot ride a Segway legally. So. Really? Yeah. Uh, both Segways and e-scooters are uh, illegal. Segways are specifically catered for. It is There is a clause that says it is illegal to ride a Segway in London. E-scooters fall in this like grey area because they, they go too fast. Um, sorry, they don't go too fast. E-scooters are illegal in the UK because they are not specifically legal. Does that make sense? <laughs> you, you, they aren't. They aren't. They go. They aren't specifically allowed. On yeah, roads. they aren't specifically allowed on the roads or pavements. Is it illegal, illegal to suspend Parliament without asking them? Um, <laughs> uh, I think. I think it's a solved problem and could be, could easily be a solved problem. So, um, I think people have looked at it in a lot of detail around electric bikes. So there are very specific regulations around. Uh, effectively how fast an electric bike can be and how powerful it can be before it's not a bike anymore before it, between effectively where it's a bicycle human powered can you cycle lanes can be insured by companies blah 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 and a scooter mm-hmm. which is which is powered i think the problem with these scooters is just uh they don't have any of that regulation so if you, if you were comfortable i think I mean, it's my view that um that they were sufficiently regulated that this is, you know, doesn't go any faster than a normal pedal bicycle for a start. That would mm-hmm. probably be one of, one of your rules. And then you could basically roll out the bicycle rules to them. Then there's, in theory, no reason why not. I think the problem with them at the moment is, um, obviously, people are using them have got no idea how to use them. And they're not training from being a small kid all the way up to adulthood how to ride a scooter and they're jumping on them and running away. But thinking about my two-year-old, he's already pretty proficient on a scooter. So... Give him, you know, by the time he's sort of a bit more grown up, uh, will he be able to ride an e-scooter very competently? Like, of course. Isn't there an argument that any anything on the road with wheels should be insured? So my point about e-bikes is valid, um, but my, my point would be there's an awful lot of push bikes on the road which do injure pedestrians and do cause accidents, and you don't have to be insured to ride a push bike in London. And I would say a lot of people who ride push bikes in London have no idea what they're doing, particularly people who are using like the, the Santander bikes or whatever. So I wonder if there's a case here that we need to actually... Enforce insurance across well, that. If you're going to be on the road, the table, well, yeah, I know. I'm looking at him. I'm hoping he's going to answer this I'm question. Just waiting for my for my go. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was interestingly a point recently where the EU looked into that and wanted to look if it should be a European-wide prescribed um, legacy. Um, I think the outcome was it should be state by state basis and country by country basis. Effectively, um, some do, some don't. Um, interestingly, in Northern Ireland, for one, they um, need a license plate to ride an e-bike, whereas you don't in the rest of the UK. So there are some nuances around that. You could make an argument that probably everyone is better off with um, a third-party liability policy 
just for the worst to happen. And of course, extending that to PA cover and personal accident is helpful. Um, I feel the risk profile between an e-bike and an e-scooter cannot be a million miles off. We, for one, again, cover um, e-bikes already, so it can't be that difficult. To your point, of course, there are some tourists, um, there are some people less proficient doing that. The same applies to Santander bikes, for instance, which you ride out for once. So I feel like it's more like in your head around, it takes a lot of spotlight at the moment in media. It's a nice topic to bash on. Um, if it's right or wrong, you see the, the headlines when someone gets injured tragically. People much, have died, actually, in the much UK. Much yeah. more happens with cyclists, sadly, right? So it should be a much wider discussion around infrastructure, around mobility of the future, around ways of transport. And that should include not just e-scooters, it should be all forms of transport in the modern world nowadays. Well, I for one hope that comes because I do think we need an absolute uh, renovation of any kind of uh, ideas of who should be on the road and what they should be doing. Um, especially, they have to get a license from Sarah first. Yeah, I'm going to be in charge. That's my plan. Uh, no, there was Car Free Day in London this weekend or last weekend, and it was absolutely fantastic. And I would like to see more pushes towards that kind of event. But we have to move on because we have a little bit of fun before we wrap up, which is insurers on alert after Blenheim Palace is 4.8 million pound gold toilet was stolen. So insurers have been alerted over the, I think most of the UK has been alerted over the theft of Blenheim Palace's solid gold toilet. The 18 carat piece of artwork by an artist whose name I'm not going to attempt to say because I will butcher it, um, was called America, was fully functional and could therefore spark an escape of water claim. So due to the toilet being plumbed into the building, its removal has caused significant damage and flooding. It's unknown whether the insurance will cover the lost piece of artwork the insurer of the artwork and the claim is yet to be revealed. Um, wow, I wouldn't want to be that insurer. Like, I would before. love to have been in the room when the broker <laughs> bought that to the insurer, to the <laughs> underwriter, and said, "Will you insure my gold toilet?" And <laughs> What I'm really enjoying here as well is that this story has done the rounds all over British media for the last couple of weeks and they've, the Insurance Times has found an insurance angle. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would want to be the insurance broker who sells the insurance policy for Blenheim Palace every year and takes their 20% commission. <laughs> yes. Actually, I think that's actually quite a handsome job and they're probably doing a right out of it. I think the, the news went that um, they didn't have any security because they believed nobody would steal such a toilet. Um, there's a saying, money does not stink, which probably is right appropriate <laughs> That's here. That's brilliant. Um, and, and, and also, from the thief's point of view, what, what do you do with your golden toilet? How do you go about selling you melt it you down. Melt golden it down. toilet? You, you melt, melt it. it down. It's pure gold. I'd like to think that somebody somewhere was sitting in a pub saying, I've got something for you here. Opening the coats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a lovely um, golden toilet out of the back. It's in the boot. If anybody does want to know about obscure art insurance, we did actually do a whole podcast on this, which talks about insuring dead bodies. Um, that's episode 25 of InsureTech Insider. Honestly, it's great. It's, it's such fun. You should go and listen to it. Um, but that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to everyone for joining me. Where can our listeners find out more about you, Toby? I'm on LinkedIn, Tobias Talpitz, um, or laka.co.uk. Perfect. Oliver? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Oliver underscore Ralph and you can find my articles on ft.com and if you're interested in fintech more broadly you can read our weekly fintech newsletter at ft.com forward slash fintech ft Brilliant and how about you Jimmy? Our website's myurbanjungle.com and you can find me on Twitter at Jimmy Swims Brilliant and you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky 
That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you to my guests today, Toby, Oliver, Jimmy, Janet, and of course, thank you to Nigel for sending us something from Las Vegas. As always, you can find this show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you.